Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Five Rings to Rule Them All. I'm Sid Ziegler. Zachary Draves has been doing some really good sports reporting for, for quite a while. And so when he made me aware of a retrospective series he was doing on the Barcelona Olympics from 1992, I, I had to have him on. Like me, Zachary is a big fan of the Olympic Games. And he wanted to take a step back in time and, and highlight those 1992 games because on so many levels, they, they had a historic nature uh, from, from just the political atmosphere, um, the splitting of the Olympic Games, some of the things that happened at these Olympic Games. So he, he got to talk to uh, a bunch of different uh, people who were in and around the, those Olympics, some who are gay and some who aren't. And he joins me this week to talk about uh, Mary Jo and Gigi Fernandez and Keith Frostad and Rowdy Gaines and some of the other folks and some of the stories that he remembers uh, and, and that he thought were most important from those Olympic Games. Anyway, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nuts and Bolts sports reporter Zachary Draves. Zach, thank you so much for joining me. Why 1992? I guess to kind of start things off, to kind of get the backstory on this. Um, so I'm an Olympic junkie. I've been an Olympic junkie ever since I was a kid. I was obsessed with the Olympics and everything having to do with the Olympics. And um, and one of my dreams as a, as a journalist is to go cover uh, an Olympic Games. And... I got started on this because, um, you know, I'm a history buff as well. So history is a big is a big part of my life. And so um, coming into coming into this year, I had already done a previous project for Nuts and Bolts Sports, acknowledging the 25th anniversary of the Atlanta Olympics in 1996. And I got to interview athletes and journalists and others who were uh, part of those games just to kind of get their thoughts. And so coming into this year, I wanted to do uh, something about Barcelona in 1992, um, in part because I just wanted, it just so happened to coincide with 2022 being 30 years after the fact. But also, and I learned this as I went along interviewing all of these different athletes and participants that um, you know, these this Olympics in particular had a great significance um, in the sense that when you look back at the Olympics prior to 1992 and after 1992, when you think about it, it was really the first Olympics that were free from any sort of political turbulence or political turmoil. I mean, certainly the Olympics in and of itself, the founding of the Olympics is inherently political. And the dynamics and the bidding process and, you know, the logistics. I mean, there's, there's, cert there's a certain level of politics attached to every single Olympics. But when you think about it, 1992 was really the first Olympics in the post-Cold War era. The year prior, the Soviet Union had officially collapsed. 1992 rolls around in Barcelona. You have the unified team. Germany is able to compete as a whole country and so forth. Um... And so, uh, you know, it was really, and when talking to these athletes and participants, 
you got the sense that these Olympics were really one of the first where you can just go out and perform and focus on the sport and not so much the politics of it, right? And then after 1992, you know, you had, you know, issues around terrorism and security and, you know, buffing up security. I mean, every Olympics after 1992 was really, um, you know, prioritizing uh, terrorism and, you know, hyping up security and things of that nature are very militarized. Um, and then also just 1992, just the stories were very fascinating and very interesting. Um, and I really wanted to highlight the stories of those athletes that maybe get overshadowed by the bigger, more glamorous kind of names. I mean, when we think of 1992, we think of the dream team as certainly the biggest draw and the biggest attraction coming out of Barcelona. Um, but I also wanted to learn more about the athletes that maybe people kind of put in the back of their minds and just kind of hear, you know, what um, they experienced in Barcelona and what it was like for them uh, to be there. Well, who are some of those athletes that you interviewed? Uh, I interviewed Mary Jo and Gigi Fernandez, who were the tennis pair. Um, they're not related. Um, prior to this, I thought they were related, but they're not. Um, but they were related in terms of their desire, um, and they want and their desire to be the best. And they won a gold medal in doubles. Um, so I got to talk to them. I got to talk to the legendary Rowdy Gaines, um, the great swimmer who was an Olympic swimmer, and in 1992, it was his first. Um, Olympics as a commentator, and if you watch swimming in every Olympics, he's the guy who's the rowdiest, you know, pardon the pun, uh, who uh, has some of the most endearing calls in the history of swimming. So I got to interview him. I got to interview Robert Dover, who was the uh, equestrian rider uh, who won his first Olympic medal in 1992. Um, I got to talk to Chrissy Perham, who was an Olympic swimmer. Um, who won two gold medals and a silver medal. And then I uh, got to talk to Keith Frosted, who was another um, swimmer as well, who got to compete in his first Olympics. Well, and in your interview, Keith, it was the first time that Keith talked about being gay. And how did that interview come about? Um, well, as you recall, you know, we did, I did the interview with him prior when he reached out to me. We had been friends on Facebook for some time, and then he reached out to me wanting to, um, you know, essentially share his story um, about, you know, being bullied and being harassed uh, during that time in the lead up to the Olympics. And, um, you know, he was just, it was just the right time for him, or he said it was the right time for him to really share his story of what he had been through. And so we did that interview earlier this spring, and it got a lot of attention. And obviously, uh, he was able to share and expound more on that with you. And then also, uh, when it came to Barcelona, um, you know, we, we had talked, and I just wanted, you know, to kind of hear what it was like for him to be in Barcelona. And, you know, after learning about what he had to go through during the trials and the harassment and the bullying that he had to go through, I mean, it was a known fact of, uh, among the competitors, among his teammates and whatnot, that he was gay. And then um, he eventually goes on to make the team. And, um, you know, it was still known, not just among U.S. swimmers, but even told me that, you know, swimmers from other countries were aware of the situation and aware of what he was going through and who he was. 
And he even said that, you know, the swimmers that he engaged with, um, I know he had, he had encountered some swimmers from France and they told him that they knew about the situation, knew who he was and were there to really rally around him and to be of support to him. And on the flip side of that, he also said that some of the swimmers that were taunting him and harassing him and bullying him during the trials um, had made the team as well. So they were in the same vicinity. But he also said that some of the swimmers that were there for him, that supported him um, during the trials, particularly from the University of Texas at Austin, the women's swimming team, um, some of those swimmers who rallied around him and supported him had also made the team. Um, and probably the most prominent name out of all of them was the great uh, Janet Evans, the legendary swimmer um, who competed in 88 and 92 and 96. Um, she was there um, supporting him and rallying around him and accepted him. And she also made the team as well. So what I took from that, you know, just talking to Keith, is um, his resilience, his resilience pulled through. And one thing that he told me when I was interviewing him this week about you know, his experience in Barcelona, when he left Barcelona, he told me that he said to himself as he was exiting the village, I mean, he didn't win a medal, but at least he said to himself, you made it. After all he'd been through, after all he, that he endured and all he had to overcome, he made it he made it to the Olympics. And to him, that was more gratifying than, than even winning a medal. Well, yeah, I mean, you get to the Olympic Games, people, people forget if you finish last at the Olympic Games, you're, you're an Olympian forever. That, mm -hmm. When I was starting out you know, writing, I, I, would, I would write the term um, former Olympian. And <laughs> it was Nancy Hogshead pointed out, um, no, you're forever an Olympian. You, 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 for, you may have formally competed in the Olympics, but you're forever an Olympian. And when I was a kid, uh, like you, I was obsessed with the Olympics, and that was my ultimate dream. I did not have the skill to become an Olympian, certainly in, uh, in uh, hurdles, which was my specialty in high school. But that, that designation, you, you take that with you forever. Absolutely. I mean, who, not too many people can say uh, that, they, that they've been to an Olympic Games or competed in an Olympic Games. And that was really what stood out to me when interviewing all of these people for this project. I could sense um, a lot of humility coming out of it. You know, it was a grand experience. It was the most thrilling experience of their life to be able to get there. And it took a lot to get there. But they were all but they also had perspective in the sense that, you know, even though they accomplished so much, they didn't get a big head about it. And so when talking to Keith and talking to Chrissy and Rowdy and Mary Jo and Gigi and Roberts, um, you know, I just really got a sense that there was a lot of humility there, that they recognized that it took a lot for them to get to that point and they didn't take it for granted. I um i've had robert dover on on this podcast a couple times i, I love uh, him and his husband robert um and he competed in i don't know six seven eight olympics and then and then and participated in in a couple more was there a story from 1992 he, he had he had come out before the 1988 
uh, Olympics. Was there something from 92 that you remember him sharing that, that stuck out to you as particularly memorable? Um, I think when he shared with me that his family and his husband were in attendance, like you said, in 1988, he had come out and was competing as an openly gay man. And in 1992, he was able to just compete and just be himself. You know, he can just compete and be openly himself and then have his husband present and to have his, uh, his family present there to cheer him on. And in addition to that, that was the Olympics in which he wins his first medal. He wins a bronze because he had competed in 84 and 88 and didn't win a medal. 1992 comes around, he wins a bronze medal, and he does it while truly being himself, like the first Olympics in which he can be, you know, his whole self and to have his husband present and to have his family present cheering him on. So that was uh, extraordinary uh, to learn. And he went on to win four bronze medals. Um, yep. And and and, and Team USA, uh, you know, had struggled in in, in dressage for a while. Yep. So that was it was yes, absolutely. Nineteen ninety two was a special year for him, uh, and, and certainly Team USA for that. Uh, and, and you know, you you talked about the historic nature of of these Olympics, and they really do stand out to me as well as as particularly historic. Like you said, it was the, the the Soviet Union had collapsed, and you had a unified German team, and um, and it was also, and the Dream Team was there with basketball. It was also the last year that the two Olympics were in the same year. That is correct. That is correct. Um, in that winter in 1992, the um, Winter Olympics were in Albertville, uh, which was in France, and. Um, back in uh, February, leading up to the uh, Beijing Olympics, the, the recent Beijing Olympics, um, I actually got a chance to interview the great Bonnie Blair, the legendary speed skater, uh, to get her thoughts about uh, her time in Albertville. Um, and she has an illustrious career. Um, you know, 1980, 1988 in Calgary is when she makes her name. 1992 comes around and um, she had endured the passing of her father. Her father was really her guiding force to get into speed skating, taking her to the rink at an early age and was there for her and got to see her compete in 88. 1992 comes around and he passes away and she's it was the first Olympics for her uh, without her father, her father present. And so she was able to, um, you know, go out and win uh, additional gold medals and become one of the most decorated Olympians in American history. And so, yeah, 1992, you had the Olympics, um, you had the winter and the summer Olympics in the same year. That was the last time. Any other stories that really stick out to you from from what they all shared? Uh, Mary Jo and Gigi Fernandez, when they were uh, winning the gold medal in the doubles, they were playing against um, two players. I forget their names, but they were from Spain. So they were representing the host country. And what really stood out to me was during the match, um, in attendance happened to be the king and queen of Spain. 
they were in attendance for the gold medal match. And so Gigi told me that during uh, she was prepping to serve the ball, and they were well ahead by that point. They were up seven to three, I think, in the in the first set, I believe it was. And um, all of a sudden, there was this huge roar. And it turns out that the king and queen of Spain were walking out onto the court, and Gigi was getting herself situated. And she told me that she didn't know what was going on, and she turned to Mary Jo and said to Mary Jo, "What's what's going on? What's what's happening?" And she said, "That's the king and queen of Spain. That's walking out onto the court and to thunderous applause." And they told me that when the king and queen, apparently the king and queen of Spain had some special powers because whenever they were in attendance at a at a certain competition, not just tennis, but elsewhere, it would give the Spaniards some momentum. And then all of a sudden, during this match, the momentum shifted back to the Spaniards. Um, And they lost a couple games. But but ultimately, Mary Jo and Gigi uh, prevailed, and they won uh, their first of two gold medals uh, as doubles partners. Were professional tennis players competing at, at this time? Yes, they were. That was the first Olympics in which professionals were able to play. So it was every sport. They, they, they opened it up. Um, obviously, the Dream Team is well-known in the U.S., but they, uh, every sport now you could, you could be a professional athlete? Yeah, absolutely. And I should also point out that, you know, you know when looking at, you know, the presence of professional athletes uh, in the Olympics, um, you know, as I mentioned, this was the first Olympics uh, of the of the post-Cold War era. When you look back at, you know, the Soviet Union, when they when they were dominating uh, the Olympics, or at least on par with the United States in the Olympics prior to 1992, they were technically professionals because they were under the guise of the Soviet government and, you know, they were paid. And so they had they were professionals by default, right? So it was nothing new. But yes, in the context of the United States uh, and the way we see professional athletes, yes, 1992 was the first in which professional athletes were uh, competing in that context. And that's something that a lot of people don't understand in every other country or, or most of them. The federal government fund uh, the, the olympic athletes i mean they they, they 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 pay them to compete and the united states is is unique in that we don't do that the, the usopc has to find sponsors and the athletes have to find sponsors and it was in an unequal playing field for a long time uh, because like you said the, you know were, were they professional athletes were they government employees uh these uh, countries got away with this in the u.s you know, has never followed suit. Exactly. They never followed suit. Um, and so, um, you know, yeah, like with, when the Soviet Union, I mean, I think that's the classic example. You know, people may not quite understand it, um, but when you look at, but when you read between the lines and you actually learn more about the mechanisms that were in place for these athletes to not only compete, but to benefit, um, it's, very, it's very easily... Uh, it's very easy to characterize them as professionals. Um, you know, the Soviet Union athletes, um, you know, they got housing, they got food, best quality housing, the best food imaginable. Um, uh, and that was all provided by the government. 
Do you think that the United States, the federal government, should 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 fund our, our Olympic athletes, or or do you kind of like the way it is? Um, that's a good question. I I think I for me personally, I like the way it is because it's been proven successful, and there hasn't really been a lot of. Uh, controversy surrounding that. I mean, after 1992, I mean, you could argue that the United States got a lot better after 1992. I mean, in 19 prior to 1992, they were usually competing with the Soviet Union, and in different Olympics, the Soviet Union it would sort of go back and forth. The United States would have the most medals in, let's say, 1964, and then 1968. It would be the Soviet Union. 72 was the Soviet Union. 76, it was the United States. And so there was more of a competitive nature there. Um, but after 1992, I mean, other countries have had to work tirelessly to try to keep up with the Olympics. Now, you can make the case that China, um, at least these days, China is really getting up there or is at least reciprocating the old Soviet Union model with the way they treat their athletes. Um, but and because of that, because obviously the government has a stake in that, I think the way the United States is operating right now or has been operating for some time is the is better because when the federal government is funding it, then that opens the door for potential corruption and bias and, you know, to kind of keep Team USA a separate entity from the government, I think is the best way to go just because, you know, there's a lot of murkiness that can come with that kind of relationship. Corruption and bias in the federal government? What are you talking about? I know, right? Unheard of. There's, of course, there's plenty of corruption and bias in the International Olympic Committee, U.S. Olympic Committee. Of course, it's a you know pop. It's it's, it's politics, but but you know it, it's it's hard for me because I talk to you know some of these athletes who struggle you know a Ch chelsea wolf bmx rider who's you know you know struggling to, to pay bills and and also represent team usa so for a lot of athletes it works out um but for i think even more it really it really is such a struggle and it's great that we have american corporations stepping up but you know i i go back and forth i i i i i think i agree that it, best to keep it out of the hands of the federal government but athletes they struggle to pay rent they do. They do a lot of the. I would. I would say the majority of them probably do. Um, and so, even if you win a gold medal, in you mentioned Chelsea Wolf. Even if she were to win a gold medal in BMX, or so and so would win a gold medal in, um, you know, kind of thinking of the Winter Olympics here in luge or something like that. You know. When you think about it, there's not really a huge market out there, unfortunately, for those kinds of sports as there is for swimming and gymnastics and track and field. Or when you think about the Winter Olympics, you tend to think of, you know, skiing or figure skating. You know, the market is there. The corporations are there to back up those athletes, especially those who have uh, who are marketable, who have the ability to reach, you know, the masses or even within those sports, you know, the athletes who don't necessarily get as much attention, you know, take swimming, take swimming, for example, you know, there's only one Michael Phelps, of course, Michael Phelps is going to get all the, the spoils and riches of being the greatest Olympian ever. And deservingly so, I mean, he's the greatest Olympian of all time without question. Um, but then those there's who are question. on a more, <laughs> what's that? I said, there's a question, uh, go ahead. 
Okay, I, I get your point. I get your point. But I think, um, you know, someone who's on a more lower level, um, you know, obviously doesn't reap all those benefits and get all those spoils. And I think that speaks to a larger existential issue about, you know, how do we um, supply these athletes with all the with as much necessity and resources uh, to be able to pay their bills and to pay their rent and whatnot. Um, you know, especially now in this era of, you know, when thinking about college sports, you know, now we're in an era of NIL uh, benefits where athletes are at least making, you know, some ounce of money or some semblance of an income uh, from sponsorships and to be able to control their destiny. You know, will we ever receive, will we ever see something similar to that in the Olympics or Olympic sports? You know, it's hard to tell, um, but you know, at least that can be a conversation that can be had about how we can at least uh, give Olympic athletes who um, maybe are competing in sports that don't have or don't garner as much attention as the primetime sports, but deserve to at least, you know, get something out of it in return, financially speaking. Because after all, no matter what sport these athletes are competing in, they sacrifice a lot of time and money to to get to an olympic games yeah no no question and and um the, re the reason I, I mentioned michael phelps being unquestionably the greatest olympian of all time it you you you, <laughs> you, you opened a uh a, a wound i've written about this before by my frustration with swimming how in in one olympic games a swimmer can win eight medals and then you have another athlete in another sport who have to who would have to go to every Olympics from 1984 to like 2020, just to even have the opportunity to win eight medals. So swimming, I, the, the, the medal count in swimming is so absurdly, ridiculously inflated. It just, mm -hmm. and like Greg Luganis, right? I mean, he, he yep. was in three Olympics. He should have been in four. He should be, he should be sitting around with six, six gold medals. Um, and that's, you know, he, he didn't have the opportunity to win many more. So it just, it makes me crazy when <laughs> the, the, the metal inflation of swimming makes me crazy. So you, 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 uh, you lit, you lit a fire. You said that. Well, I, I, I get it. And I think people, when people think of, you know, the title of the greatest Olympian ever, you know, people just sort of go on that by medal count and how many medals, particularly how many gold medals that somebody has and not really thinking about sort of the intricacies of how, as you pointed out, the, the intricacies and the complexities about how medals are counted or the judging, you know, you mentioned Greg Luganis in diving, you know, the ways in which divers are judged and the judging system and the scoring system, the point system, all that good stuff, you know, people, I guess if you're, unless you're an Olympic enthusiast, like we are, unless you're a sports enthusiast, you're not really thinking about that aspect of it. You're thinking sheerly about, you know, who won and how many medals did they won to make an assumption about who we, who you characterize as the greatest of all time. Yeah, it's, well, it, it's, an, it's an endless debate, right? <laughs> no question. Um, any other, before we go, any other uh, final story that you wanted to share from your conversations or, or something that you think just, you know, really stuck out to you in this very memorable Olympic Games? I think what, another one that stood out to me was Chrissy Perham, who was the uh, swimmer who won two gold medals and a silver medal. Um, she had, um, 
she was, uh, you know, competing in the relay events with the likes of, you know, someone like Jenny Thompson. And she told me that what really stood out to me from her was not so much what happened during the Olympics, but after the Olympics. Um, and she shared with me that during COVID, when everybody was at home and doing Zoom calls, uh, she said to me um, that one day she was on her computer lying, laying in her bed on her computer, and she was on a Zoom call with all of her teammates from 1992, and there was about 50 of them. And so you had Jenny Thompson, you had Janet Evans, you had Summer Sanders, you had Keith Frosted, you had, you know, uh, uh, you had all of these folks on one call together. And, you know, COVID was obviously a time where people stopped to reflect about their lives and relationships and whatnot. And what really stood out to me from that um, aspect of it was just the bond that they really have together. And when you think about it, 1992, that was really when, you know, those swimmers in particular were starting to become household names. You know, prior to that, you know, you had your, you know, Mark Spitz, for example, in 1972. Um, but then when 1992 comes around, you had all of these people, men and women um, swimmers who were just starting to become household names. And what really stood out to me was just how tight of a bond they have, that they still keep in touch with one another. They have a group chat. They have a Facebook group that they're a part of where they just keep keep in touch with one another. And it's almost as if that bond that they developed in Barcelona didn't leave. And so that really said something about what those games had provided, not just the athletic, but also the social and emotional aspect. Well, great stuff. Thanks for, thanks for tackling this. Thanks for, for joining me. Um, where can we find this? Uh, you can find it at Nuts and Bolts Sports. That's nutsandboltsports.com. And you will see my articles. Just go to my name, or you can type in my name, Zachary Draves, and that's D as in David, R-A-V as in Victor, E-S. And then you will see all of those articles on there, and you can read them and enjoy them and let me know your feedback. Like Zachary said, you can find his series at nutsandboltsports.com. The, right at the top of the front page right now, but you can do a little search there. One of the things we did not talk about was the Freddie Mercury song, Barcelona, that came out um, before the Olympic Games. It kind of became a theme for the Olympic Games. It was one of the last songs that he ever recorded. So if you don't know the song Barcelona by Freddie Mercury, go check it out. Thank you, as always, for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.